We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, Ryan, let's transition into the mailbag today. We do have some good questions. We have some super chats here. We have one from Bill Kostrub. It says, if we get burnt by another long shovel pass again, I am I will absolutely lose my stuff. And yes, yeah. There's that, you know, that's been the thing that's been kind of maddening about Notre Dame in recent years is like some of the big plays they've given up are just like, what are you doing? Fluky. Yeah. 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 Or not even fluky, yeah. but just like, dude, you you know. That's not even them being better than you. Like, like Devontae Smith torching them, he was just better than they, anybody they had. Sure. You know, like there was, you know, they outplayed Notre Dame in the, in the Fiesta Bowl last year. They did. It wasn't fluky. They just outplayed them. But a lot of the stuff is like, what? Like, what? Come on. Pick sixes again. You put your backup quarterback, your starting quarterback's coming off the best game of his career in 2017 against Wake Forest. In the first half, things aren't going great. And you bench him for a, you know, redshirt sophomore who's, you know, who was like mediocre at best, I'd say below average in his only start that season. And then you're shocked when he throws a pick six. Hey, that ain't Ian Book's fault. Right. <laughs> That's your fault. You know what I mean? As a coach, some of the stuff is like, you know, the fumble against Clemson, like, you know, some of the stuff they did, like, uh, you know, if that wasn't Clemson making a play, that was you being dumb. Are you blowing a coverage? Or, and, and that's the thing that I want to get rid of is if, if somebody's going to beat you, Ryan, make them yeah. beat you. Sure. Well, it was like that. Uh, I was at the Cincinnati game last year where they hit that, they hit that, that, um, that seam route to Leonard Taylor against Kyle Hamilton. Like, I'm just like, Kyle, like Leonard Taylor's yeah. a solid little player, man, but like, that's it's just not, it's just not no. what should ever happen. Right. Well, and like, and even that game, happen. they scored why you fumbled a ball inside your own 10. Right. You throw a terrible you, – you, and this is like the, – the, the weird thing about that game is I kind of felt like all year they would put Tyler Buckner in the game to start a drive, and that's when it would work. But if you, I think if you – I believe I'm correct on this. The series where he threw the pick, they brought him in during yeah. the drive. It was more, it was more of like a, a in-series rotation. Right. Than a series, and series rotation. guess what? Yeah. You got out of your norm, and it and results in a pick. In your biggest game, you went away from what had got you there. And yep. lo and behold, guess what happens? You throw a pick. It wasn't a pick six. He, they ran it back. I think it's like the 10 or 15 and then Something scored like that, a little yeah. bit after that. But, like, it's just stuff like that. Like, I I can live with 
the the 2020 Bama loss to a degree. I mean, I thought like just the overall game plan on offense was just so like let's not get blown out, but like they played hard. You know, mm-hmm. Bama just made a bunch of plays, and there's stuff you got to clean up. But it wasn't like why did they not cover Devontae Smith on that play? Right. No, it was Devontae Smith well, just shaking dudes that he's just better than. You know, well, that, just, that's I, that, that's the biggest thing. It's like I'm going to continue to go back to the Cincinnati game because that was the last regular season game that I've been in person, Brian. Just in that game, mm-hmm. I think to your point. Tyler Buckner's interception was in the red zone, right? I know it was definitely on the 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 their side of the 50. I can't remember if it was in the red zone or not, but Jack Cohen throws an interception in the red zone. Do you remember the drop by Kevin Austin later yeah. in that game where he's oh, wide he's right open in the middle, over of the field? middle of the field? Yeah. It's not like it's not like, like he's what happens in that game, Ryan, if Notre Dame goes down and scores a touchdown? To your point, exactly. what happens in that game if Notre Dame goes right down the field in Cincinnati and scores a touchdown instead of throwing They had back? all the momentum at that point. Right. Notre Dame had all the momentum working there in that second half. And again, it's not like if Kevin Austin is working downfield against a mod Gardner, right, who just went fourth mm-hmm. overall in the draft and he didn't win the rep, I'd be like, okay, a mod Gardner is just better than him. Like, what do we want to say about right. that? But the fact of the matter is that he's wide open in the middle of the field. And it's just an egregious drop. Like it's just, it's just bad. That's self-inflicted. That's mm-hmm. lack of concentration. That's not lack of Jimmy's and the Joe's there, right? Like that's preparation. And that's like the mental side of the game. Right. right. So there's a lot of those things that have just been like these weird, inf- uh, like self-inflicted things for whatever reason that you just can't have, especially in those big right. games, man. Like you can't hurt yourself. The, the team right. you're playing against is a good football team already. That's why it's a big game. You can't have those self-inflicting things. Those things will just kill you. Absolutely kill you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Trade Coffee sent us two new flavors after my wife filled out their quiz. Big City French Roast from Joe Coffee in New York City and Black Velvet from Atomic Coffee Roasters in Massachusetts. The Black Velvet was a dark roast with a note of burnt sugar, graham cracker, and malted milk balls. It was a very rich but smooth flavor that reminded her a bit of her favorite dessert, creme brulee. The Big City French Roast was also a dark roast, which is right up my wife's alley. And it was flavored with burnt sugar, baking chocolate, and roasted almonds. The smell in the kitchen while she was preparing a cup of coffee put a smile on my face. And she said the taste was even better and sweeter. And she didn't pick these flavors. They were chosen by Trade after she filled out a short quiz. You got to give this a try. And Trade Coffee connects customers to the freshest and best tasting coffee they've ever made at home by partnering with the country's best craft roasters. These are independent businesses from big cities and small towns. Trade customers are truly impactful for these independent roasters, often being the largest source of new growth for them. 
Trade's coffee team actually taste tests thousands of coffees to keep 450 different kinds live and ready to ship every day. There's no one perfect coffee, but there is a perfect coffee for you and Trade's human-powered algorithm will find it. Trade is so confident they'll match you right the first time that if they don't, they'll take your feedback and an actual coffee expert will work with you to send you a brand new bag for free. Right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order plus free shipping and handling when you go to drinktrade.com forward slash Irish. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. Get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com forward slash Irish and let Trade find you a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com forward slash Irish for $30 off. We have a comment, Bill, and Bill, by the way, thank you for your super chat. We have we have a comment down here, and this is kind of this is kind of the problem that I have with this. Mm-hmm. So Juan says, Ohio State also got destroyed by Michigan. True. Uh, the only big game I remember day winning at Ohio State was Clemson in 2020. At this point, Ohio State should be considered overrated. My, my thing is, I think you can make that argument, Ryan, but the problem is you can't make that argument over Notre Dame. Sure. Because you say the only big game I remember winning is a playoff game where they blew Clemson out, a team that had just beat Notre Dame a few weeks before by three touchdowns and a field goal. Right? I mean, that's the thing is if if Notre Dame's only big game win was the 2018 playoff game against Clemson, then the narrative's a little different. Mm-hmm. Or if their only win was the 20 – if they let's say they had beat Alabama in the, in the semifinal in 2020 and then gone out and got beat convincingly by Ohio State, the narrative would be different. It wouldn't be ideal like where you want it to be, but it would be different. I don't disagree that Ryan Day is a little – I wouldn't say he's overrated. He's overrated in the technical sense. I think that he gets a lot of he's hype. He's got a lot to prove. He's, he's got, got a lot, lot to prove. prove. Same with Lincoln Riley. They inherited great situations, and they didn't necessarily make them better. Like Ohio State hasn't been better since Ryan Day took over and say, well, you know, Urban had some really bad losses. You don't see the Iowa 17 loss anymore. You don't see the Purdue 18 loss anymore. And that's true. They Then they get blown out. They're getting blown out by good teams now. But they're also winning some of those big games too. And that's the difference. You know, like I said, and, and even in some of the losses that they've had, I mean, the Clemson loss in 2019, which was Ryan Day's first season as head coach, it was a very competitive game. I mean, very competitive game. So I understand where you're coming from, and, and I don't I don't necessarily disagree that Ryan Day is overrated. I, I actually don't disagree with that at all in, in the traditional sense of the word. I think the Big Ten hasn't been great. I think Penn State has consistently outcoached Ohio State in matchups, if we're going to be honest. They just don't have nearly the players as Ohio. I mean, they've battled Ohio State in each of the last two years during a stretch when Penn State's gone 11 and 11, yeah. right? They got stomped by the only good Michigan team that Ryan Day has faced, if we're being honest. Yeah, so he's overrated. But you can't, as a Notre Dame fan, you can't grab hold of that as some sort of counter to the Notre Dame narrative. You can only say, hey, well, you should be in the conversation with us, not as right. sort of a counterattack to why the narrative about Notre Dame exists. And that's two the side, reality. Two sides can can – they, they can both exist. Right. Ohio State can be slightly overrated, but they can still be better than Notre Dame right now. Right. That's just, you know, right. that, like those things can exist. Right. Where does their overrating like- come from? Wins. Right. Winning right. the championship right. in 14. Right. You know, beating Clemson in 20. Look, because I'll say this right now. If Clemson would have done to Ohio State what Ohio State did to Clemson in the 2020 playoff, I guarantee mm-hmm. you there'd be people talking about him being overrated. Guarantee it. 
Sure. Because now you'd be like, what's your big win, dude? You lost to Michigan for the first time in a decade. Not only did you lose to them, you got embarrassed by them. Like they stomped, they physically stomped you. Right. Right. You're, you, what's your big win? Beating a depleted Utah team by like three in the Rose Bowl? Like, what's your big win, dude? Right. But he does have that win over Clemson to hang his hat on. And it wasn't like it was a fluky game and Clemson was missing a bunch of dudes. They just beat them convincingly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the thing is, is they have at least that and they have a national championship. Now I go, I know he didn't win it, but I'll gladly take Brian Kelly being overrated with a national championship under his belt or Marcus Freeman being underrated with Notre Dame have not, not necessarily, you know, that coach having one, but having Notre Dame having won a national championship. Like if Notre Dame wins a national championship this year, you can call them overrated all you want. I do not care. <laughs> do not care. <laughs> Whatever. I got a ring. I just, you know, yeah. we're here. I got this. We'll go to, right? we'll, and we'll go to the yeah. parade. And we'll sure. Be all right. Sure. <laughs> Whatever. I don't care. You know, don't, doesn't matter to me. So, uh, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And, and like I said, Juan, you're not wrong, but it's just, it's hard for Notre Dame to make that argument. And also, you know, Ohio State's had some big losses, but some of their losses in those games have also been competitive. They also have a lot. I mean, you know, the Michigan kicked their butt, but it was a 15 point loss. It's a little different than 41 to eight against Miami. It's a little different than, you know, 30 to three or 31 mm-hmm. to 14 in the game you scored last. It's just a little different. And and I understand why Notre Dame fans want to make that argument, and they're absolutely right. But it just it just doesn't really affect me that much because I don't care what Ohio State does. I care what Notre Dame does. And if, they if got Notre Dame. If Notre Dame wins on September the third, then we can start yes. fighting back against that narrative line. We'll and you can blow. Back. And look, I'll tell you this right now: if Notre Dame wins that game, I can almost guarantee you that that narrative will come out of it about Ryan Day. Those questions will will exist about Ryan Day. Uh, there's, I mean, you're you're hearing it a little bit from Ohio State fans, but it's hard to take anything they say seriously because they literally, I, I know Ohio State fans who literally think that they have the best roster in the country and it's not even close, and that they should just smash everybody. They'll literally make that argument. It's like, well, if you don't win the national championship by thirty, you're going to make them unhappy. I mean, they're in, they're insane. A lot of them are insane. Uh, you know, but that's the thing is, you, you know, Notre Dame has to be able to change that narrative be, by what they do on the field. And yeah. if they do win that game, I'm telling you, there's going to be some interesting stuff. Because think about this. If Ryan Day's last two losses were to the two other Midwestern powerhouse teams, one being at home, one being with the Big Ten championship on the line. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's going to be some stuff said. There's no doubt about it now. All of that doesn't mean a whole lot if Notre Dame doesn't win. And that's the thing. And it, he doesn't have to win by much. He just has to win. And same thing yeah. with Notre Dame. I don't care if Notre Dame beats him by one or 50. I just need to beat him. I don't care if it's 10 to 9 or 42 to 41. Don't care. Just win. That's it. That's all that matters. It's all just that matters. Win, baby. Just win, baby. Just win, baby. You just had it's to. I, I was Davis thinking it, but I was like, Davis. it's Al Davis and – yeah, he's a nut job, and I'm a Broncos fan, so I, I just couldn't go there. I, I have a scout. I have a. I have a uh, old scouting friend that was uh, was a scout under Al Davis. I have a lot of funny stories oh, that I can tell yeah. you sometime. Not we'll on have, the air though. Not we'll on have the air. To, we'll have to do that. <laughs> we'll have to do that for sure. Dan Muller with super chat. Thank you, Dan, very much. If you were calling the D versus Ohio State, would you rush four and drop seven and try to avoid the big plays, or would you be aggressive using different blitz packages? And I'm gonna. My answer is yes. Yes, and and yeah. the whole thing is, Dan, is 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 you created two different scenarios, and I think they both have to exist together. 
I think there have to be times when you do drop seven and, and bring four. I think there's times when it justifies dropping eight and bringing three. Uh, you know, there are also times when it justifies bringing six, you know, depending on how Ohio State's lined up and the scenario. And and it's 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 all about the big thing is, Dan, when you talk about calling plays against Ohio State, you can't let Ohio State get a read on what you're going to do. Because the one do I think Ryan Day's a, a little overrated as a head coach? Yeah. Where I don't think he's overrated is as a play caller in games. He's sure. a very good game day play caller, especially in the pass game. I think sometimes their run game is more about just having better dudes, but pass game wise, you know, they're they're schemed well. They're not super complex, but he knows when to call when, you know, what to call when, how to get guys in and he's really good at getting isolations and matchups and doing things like that, even though it's not like a super, super complex. Like one of the misnomers about his pass offense is that it's really complicated. It's really not, but that's partly what makes it so successful. He's got really good dudes, and he finds ways with formations, motions, shifts, and things like that to get into isolations, to use guys to clear clear guys off when they are in those isolations, to get guys in space. He does a great job with that. If he knows – Yeah, but but it's, it's done in ways where, like, I know who I'm trying to get open here. And if he knows what you're doing, he will rip you apart. He will rip you apart. Where teams have had some success against him, and I thought Northwestern did a great job of this in 2020, uh, at least early on, before Ohio State just said, hey, our dudes are better than you, and you have no one that can stop Trey Sermon and our offensive line and all that kind of thing. He just ran it on. But when when they've had trouble is when, the, when their quarterbacks start guessing and thinking. And like, I'm not sure what's happening here. And, you know, they'll still get their stuff. Like, so for against Michigan last year, CJ still got his numbers. There's a lot of plays where he's taking sacks, throwing the ball away, missing players because he's not sure what he's seeing. And they bring somebody here, they show this, but then drop this guy or bring this guy and do all those types of different things. And, and that's when you have to have success. So do all those things. Use blitz packages. You can't blitz all day, though. You also can't drop seven and eight all day. Not against sure. a good coach. But and and, yeah. and you don't want to too because I mean that's predictable, right? Like you don't want to right. be predictable against a guy like a Ryan Day because to your point, he's a really good play caller. So I agree with you. And to Dan's question, you need to mix everything up, right? Like you can't just be a one track defensive approach because that's too predictable for a good offensive coordinator, a good offensive play caller. I will say this though, Brian, and I've talked about this a little bit in the past. I do think that I'll be able to tell a lot about, in my opinion. How, Notre, how successful Notre Dame's defense is if they are able to get home with four, though. If you're able to get home with four consistently when you're in those situations, I think Notre Dame's going to be very, very good that day. So we'll see about that. But I do think that you have to mix everything up. But I do think it's very important for, at the end of the day, Isaiah Foskey has to get home. Jason Amolo yeah. has to get home. Those guys have to create pressure and take advantage of – they have to be better than the guys in front of them at the end yeah. of the day. So that, that's my biggest indicator is I think that there will be some – there is something to Dan's question of if you're able mm-hmm. to get home with four, then you're in a good spot, man, because if right. you get home with four, you're definitely going to be able to get home with five, definitely going to be able to get home with six. Right. That just makes everything the situation where, like, you can just toy with guys now. But you have to be better than the offensive line that day. You have to be. Yep. So for me, I think it is a situation where – Getting home to me means hits, sacks, batted balls, for anything that creates a negative. And a negative to me isn't isn't a in the very technical sense of did you get a minus one? It's anything that creates them from getting positive yards is considered a win for the defense, in my opinion. So incompletions, 
sacks, tip balls, turnovers, hits on the quarterback, things along those lines are all musts. And and to Ryan's point, you've got to you've got to be able to hit it home. There's there's no question about it. There's no question about it. All right, let's get. We got some more here. Really, really good stuff today. We have a question from Chief Brody. Says, "Sorry if this is super secret or belongs on the board, but what software do you use for hype vids, and where did you get clips? Always wanted to try uh, iMovie." Can I say this before yeah. you answer? Can I say sure. this before you answer? So I texted Brian yesterday and asked him. This is between the 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 chat and us right now. I told Brian, "Wow, did did you learn how to to edit videos yourself?" And he took that as I was insulting him when He's, I was yeah. giving him a compliment because the way you pressed the way you said it was like, dude, did you teach yourself to do that? Like, you know what I mean? Like dude, I had yeah, I had this thing. I was like, uh, is that your way of saying you didn't like the video? But no, it uh, I just use iMovie and just just I have you you're, there's a ways to kind of take a YouTube clip and turn it into video form to where you can then insert into iMovie and you just cut it up that way. So I uh, did the same thing with the the audio stuff like that. So it's just, just learn how to do that a little bit, but it's fun. And now the thing is you can't monetize it. That's why I put it up on my personal YouTube page and not on Irish breakdown. Cause you're violating copyright if you do that and try to monetize it. So like, that's why I haven't put it on like a, an Irish breakdown story to, to, to text even though it's a free story, I'm getting ad revenue from people reading that story to me. Maybe this isn't true legally, but to me, I view that as a potential copyright violation because I'm taking your, you know, copyrighted work and I'm putting it into something that's going to then profit me. And, you know, but, you know, so we, we put it on the message board for fun and that's the only place where it is. But uh, yeah, that's just, it's, it's fun to do. And, and I only did it cause like the other night it's like midnight and I'm like, dude, I can't sleep. I'm wide awake. Like I just, I was like, I couldn't concentrate. And I was like, let me just make a little bit of a hype vid here real quick. So I uh, put it together and finally got to bed around five 30 <laughs> that morning. So you should make a highlight video of our podcasts, the yeah, best no. moments in Irish breakdown. Hard pass. Hard pass. <laughs> I hate listening to myself. Like I hate I too. like when I'm editing the show, I just, I hate listening to myself. I was like, did I really sound like that? Gosh, man. I, yeah, like, I know. My yeah. wife's my wife's always asked me if I if I listen to the podcast. I'm like, no, I was there. What do I need yeah. to <laughs> what do I need to listen to? <laughs> yeah, there's there's like I'll tell you to listen to sing, things sometimes just because we're trying sure. to hey let's work on the this or let's work on that or yeah. those different things. But yeah, John A one asks. I assume Notre Dame still wants to be multiple uh, be a multiple front defense. Which seven players give you the most formation versatility without substituting? It's a really That's interesting right. question. Yeah, so multiple yeah. front. So I mean I'm I imagine you're you're mainly talking about sort of your front seven. Mm-hmm. That's a that's an interesting one. I mean I I, I mean I, I think that that if we're if if I was putting together which defensive line alignment gives Notre Dame the best opportunity to be multiple without substituting ever, my lineup would look like this. Mm-hmm. Isaiah Foskey's my big end. Mm-hmm. I have Riley Mills and Jason Adamiola inside. Agreed. I have Jordan Patello as my Viper or Jason Adamiola, Justin Adamiola as my Viper. One of those two. Mm-hmm. The reason I'd go with that is, is because I think Justin and Jordan, especially Jordan, can both play linebacker, like truly play linebacker. I think J- I think Jordan is a little f- twitchier and faster than Justin, but Justin's more disciplined and, 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 and a good athlete in his own right. I think those that four-man tandem can, can do a 3-3 stack just as easily as they can do a 4-2-5 in my opinion. I think linebacker, it's kind of what it already is, right? I mean, again, because if you look at 
which alignment right now, it's also taking into account who has got the experience to be ready to step in and fill a certain role. I mean, in yeah. six months or a year, my answer could be Jalen Sneed and one of these spots. But where we are right now and what we know, it's Maris Lua-Fowl, it's J.D. Bertrand, and it's Jack Kaiser. I mean, I think the linebacking core is kind of where it is. Now, the, the, the potential exception would be is depending on who you're playing, I could I could address a scenario in which I would actually like to see Clarence Thomas in the nickel and take out one of the linebackers. Now, whether that's J.D. Bertrand or Jack Kaiser is to be debated, but where I'd put Clarence Lewis in the nickel because as a base defense because I could easily, in a passing down, swap him and Tariq Bracey, would be my field corner in this scenario. If we're going to play a team in a passing situation and I want to get Tariq inside in the matchup, I can easily do that. But against a running team, I got Clarence in the slot because he can give me a better – force player against the run perimeter run and perimeter pass force player meaning he's going to come up take on the lead blocker and force a bounce or a he's either going to spill it or force it back inside right you want a guy that's got a little bit of force there. that's why a lot of teams go with a rover as opposed to just putting a fifth pure db in there is because you need to be able to protect yourself against the perimeter runs and the perimeter throws because if you're just if you just put like a little cornerback out there and it's third and four I got no problem running a bubble screen or a now screen because I know I can block your two cover corners off the line and get my guy free. But if I got a rove, a Jeremiah Wusukoromoa, Jack Kaiser out there, you better, you know, you you're you're taking a risk there because that guy's gonna be able to got the speed to close, but also the physicality to blow up that leap blocker. So I think that would probably be my alignment, Ryan. And and you know, and then I'd have Ramon Henderson in there too with Brandon Joseph at safety because I think you can do a lot of different things with Ramon Ramon as well. Yes. You can put him in the nickel, you can put him outside, you know, boundary. There's different things you can do with him as well as far as just a versatility. So that would be my alignment. Any any major disagreements there? I, I, I like that you dispelled that little – because I, I, I'll say this. From an NFL draft perspective, I've seen a lot of guys that just every undersized quarter, they're like, oh, he could play nickel. And I'm like, but can he – can he defend the run at all? Right. Can he can he can he be that force player? Like, can he right. do those types of things? And the answer is usually no. And I'm like, well, he can't play nickel then. I'm sorry. Not every small corner can play nickel. Sorry. So right. that was just a quick tangent. Right. If we're talking about base see- downs, right? Because we're not talking yes. about third and ten. We're talking about first and right. ten. If if I see a little 175 pound corner that can't take on a block, I'm running perimeter screens, perimeter runs, and stuff at you all day. All and you're day. not gonna be and as soon as you get your safety down to protect him, I'm doing a pump and throwing it over your head. I mean, 100%. to your point, in, in in base downs, you need a guy that can come up. And Tariq Bracey will battle, but he's small. Sure. And I'm going to put my my slot. I'm going to put I'm going to put somebody on him that's just going to beat him up in the slot on first and ten. That's just what I'm going to do. Yeah, so, absolutely. Go ahead. The only thing the only thing I would add is you stole my thunder with the Riley Mills inside thing. That's definitely my answer, right? Like Adam Alola and Riley Mills are playing are playing inside. Isaiah Foskey and Justin Adam Malola were also the players that I, I would have picked. The only thing that I would add is that I would toy with Batello at Rover because I think in certain situations, Justin Adam Malola drops and then here comes Batello off the edge, right? So it's kind of they're almost they're almost yeah. similar players in the fact that I feel like I, they can mix and match. Let me ask you this, Ryan. Let me ask you this. Instead of putting him at Rover. What would be your stance? What would be your thoughts on putting him inside? So, like, you have Justin. So, you have your three that we agree on, right? Jason, Adamiola, yeah. Riley inside, and then Isaiah outside. Now, the th- thing I like about that is when you go to an odd front, you can either put Jason or, or Riley at nose, and yeah. then you'd have the other one at the edge with Isaiah on the edge. And then you take that other guy and drop him back. 
what would be yeah. sort of a thought in, in regard to saying, okay, you have that three, and then you have Justin Adamiola as your Viper, and then you kind of make Jordan Patelho sort of your, I wouldn't call him a rover, but he, he could just inside and then with Marist. Because now you can do things where you can, you can, you know, you can have him kind of at the mic and you can bring him on a fire and then drop Justin into coverage, right? Or you can, you can, you know, you can drop him into coverage and bring Justin, or you can drop, bring both of them and just go cover one. And then you can bring Jordan from, I mean, you can move Jordan around and bring him from anywhere. And the reason I would move Jordan off the ball in this scenario is because I think Jordan, because he's got a little bit more long speed than Justin, Justin's really quick in spaces. Jordan's more of a long distance, like good speed and range. That's why he's playing Rover. I would trust him getting to the quarterback on a, on a blitz from depth than I would Jason, who I want at the line using his hand technique and all those type of things to win at the point of attack. What would you think about that? Does that concern, would your concern be in passing downs? You're a little bit more vulnerable to the pass game with that guy in there. I mean, what would your, what would your pushback to that be? My biggest concern would actually be in the running game a little bit, right? Like, it, so in that situation, I love the I love the potential of moving a Jordan Patello all over the place. Like, you bring him off the edge at times, right, on some type of stunts or some type of movement. You you must rush him a little bit, you know, as kind of a, a almost like a quarterback spy at times. You bring him on a delayed blitz and the a gap, all that stuff's great, Brian. My only thing though is that we've talked a little bit about like dependability with the sure. Vitello, right sure. so like him playing mike on base down sometimes and i don't know if i would have him playing mike though player yeah, yeah i don't know i'd probably have so maris playing mike i'd probably so have Mar- gotcha. i'd probably have maris playing mike and then kind of move him around a little bit you i'd know? be okay with that then i'd be okay yeah. with that if, if he's literally if i'm literally just using him as a movable chess piece on the second level then i am good with that right i just don't want to get stuck where like I now have to depend on you to be a complete run to make all the line consistently. calls consistently. Right. Yes. 100%. Because the only reason we would make this kind of a lineup is if we're playing a team that spreads. Yes. That's sure, why yeah. you would need this for, if you're playing Stanford, 2011, 2012, gonna play this, yeah. you don't need this versatility. You just line up right. and you put your big boy pants on line up in your four, two, five and say, let's get after it. You know and what I mean? Stefan tail. That's yeah, right. Exactly. That's yeah, right. Exactly. And now Jordan is my Rover in that scenario. Right. Mm-hmm. And that would be the only change I would make. You know, uh, they're just that team's not on the schedule right now. It's more of the Clemson's, the USC's, the Ohio State's, the the North Carolina's, the BYU's stuff where that type of alignment would make a lot of sense. So that's mm-hmm. a good discussion. Really, really good question. Really good question. It's fascinating, honestly. Yeah. We have a, a question down here from Mr. Adamiola, who is a friend of Ooh. the show. We love him very much because I have a question. What will the narr- what will be the narrative on the on the Notre Dame defensive line if Notre Dame wins and the boys do great? I think it's gonna it's not gonna it's here's the here's what the narrative will be. It will no longer be Isaiah Foskey and a bunch of dudes, right? Because that's right. what we said. Like, like, and I'm I, I actually respect Bruce Feldman a lot. I don't view mm-hmm. him as a a hot take guy. I just yeah, don't. I think in this instance, I just don't think he's knowledgeable of of who Notre Dame is. He's kind of buying into the perceived notion because. He's he's a reporter. He mm-hmm. he's not a, an analyst that's breaking down all twenty two all games. So I don't. I, I'm not taking a shot at Bruce Feldman here because I actually have a lot of respect for Bruce Feldman. I think he does a great yes. job. He's you know when he talks about what he's hearing, like I know he's I know he didn't just hear from one person and he's running with it. He's done his homework. So he's ton of respect for yeah. Bruce Feldman, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I'm making the point of of the narrative that he is backing, not so much that that 
like I don't put him in the same category of like Paul Feinbaum in my, so I just want to make sure I'm clear on that. But what he's doing is sort of disrespecting Notre Dame unintentionally by saying Isaiah Foskey and maybe another guy or two, meaning like none of those other dudes are even worth mentioning at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens, Mr. Adamiola, is if if the boys do well in Notre Dame, it'll be a factor in Notre Dame winning, as we talked about earlier in the show, is other guys have to step up. It's no longer going to be Isaiah Foskey and the other guys. It's right. going to be Notre Dame's defensive line is legit. How do you defend Foskey? How do you defend the Adam Yola twins? They move Justin all over the place. Jason's unblockable inside. This Riley Mills kid, where the heck did he come from? And I think that's the narrative is where it's kind of like how we saw it change in 2012. I mean, you know, Manti was always a big name, but nobody was ever talking about Manti being what Manti became until Notre Dame started winning big games. And then all of a sudden, Lewis Nix's perception starts to change. He starts to become a name that people talk about. You know, Stefan Tuitt steps up and makes plays. Now, all of a sudden, he's a name that people are talking about. So it's not Manti and everybody else. It's now, wow, look how good, you know, Irish chocolate's a legend now, right? Because of that season, right? Stefan Tuitt really only had one great season at Notre Dame. That's it. It was 2012. But people talking about how he's one of the best defensive linemen Notre ever had because of why? That one season. So I think that's really what the narrative becomes is, wow, Notre Dame's – and I think you start to hear things like this. Notre Dame's a lot more talented than I thought. They've got yes. more speed than I thought. Gee, they're more disruptive than I thought. And then over the next month that they continue to build on it, then you start seeing more specifically discussion about the specific players. It won't happen mm-hmm. just because of that game – but people start taking a look at what else happened. So unless they win and Isaiah Foskey has five sacks, nobody else does anything, right, and the boys do well, then I think that's what happens. And I think the other thing, too, is if the boys do well in that game and Notre Dame keeps winning, uh, it's going to be some really interesting NIL calls because wouldn't you want a pair of twins on a top-ranked Notre Dame defense to be 100%. representing your stuff? So that's the other thing that I think would be a big a big part of that as well. I, I, think, it, I think it's – I mean, to your point, Brian, I think it's just about putting – from a national perspective, because we know a lot about the Adam Alolas. We know a lot about Riley Mills. Like we know the high school background, recruiting background, statistics, big games they've had, like all that type of stuff. Right. Like we, because we watch every single game, but if from a national perspective, it's putting a name to a face at that point. Right. Cause you, cause I'm sure most people that have watched the Notre Dame game, occasionally you're like, Oh, 57 looks like a decent player. Right. Like, Oh, you know, Jason, uh, Justin is, is, you know, has an, I mean, quietly, Justin was second in the team in sacks last year. So like, you'll, you'll kind of get those flashes of like, Oh, there's nine again, there's 57, there's this player, 99, all that type of stuff. Right. But eventually then people go, Oh, I kind of probably have to look this guy up because like he keeps making plays. He keeps making plays. So the name recognition, I think, is the biggest thing that'll change. Is it's not? It's going to be a different label. It's going to be Notre Dame has a really good defensive line. It's not going to be wow, Isaiah Foskey's really right. good, and Notre Dame's got a couple okay players beside him because we I know mean, that that's not the fact of it. But it is the national perception. Can we be honest about some things? Georgia had some guys drafted a lot higher last year because of their success. Mm-hmm. Not not that Trayvon Walker would have been a seventh round draft pick if they don't win the national title. Uh huh. But I but I think it certainly helped them go number one. You know, I think they had some guys go on day two that probably are day three guys if they don't go out and make the run that they had. And the run is involves in success. The success is now, to Ryan's point, hey, we'll draft a guy that doesn't even start at linebacker in the third round because why? 
boy, that defense was great. And the narrative is it's so great that even this guy can't even get on the field. <laughs> right. That's how the narrative changes, you know? And I, and I think those are the things that kind of go into it. Absolutely. Cole Barker with a super chat. Thank you, Cole. Do you see Lou Holtz having a big impact on Marcus Freeman? Do you see similarities in how they coach football practice? Uh, no, they, they coach football practice very differently. Where I think the similarities exist, Cole, is and where I think that he'll have an impact on him. Is I, I personally believe there's two people right now as coaches that are having a major impact on Marcus Freeman. Jim Trestle and, and Lou Holtz. And, and there's a lot of similarities between Trestle and Holtz. Toughness, accountability, love your kids, love your players. Now, loving players doesn't always mean hugging and kissing them because they did something good. Sometimes it means kicking them in the butt. You know, and and, and getting on him. And Lou Holtz was great at that. Jim Trussell believed in that. Now, I won't let anybody else talk about you, but sometimes I'm going to chew you out a little bit. And I think he's impacted by that. I think there are also guys that believe and understand the need to be disciplined, to be accountable, to be, you know, to play physical football. I think where Lou Holtz is going to have the greater impact is truly helping Coach Freeman understand what makes Notre Dame unique and special and how to utilize that specifically what makes Notre because Jim Trestle can't speak to that. Jim Trestle can only view of give his impression of Notre Dame for, as an outsider, and I'm sure it's respectful because Jim Trestle grew up in a coaching era when Notre Dame was a big time program. So there's going to be a level of respect there. He's recruited against Notre Dame a bunch of times back in the day, and so you know, to me, I think that's where he can. You know, Lou Holtz can also help. It's like, hey, yeah, this is all good, but here's what, what here's the a way that you can tie Notre Dame into this and make it special and make it good. I think those are things, Ryan, that 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 where Lou Holtz could have a big impact on Jim Trestle. Yeah, I I think the biggest thing, and you mentioned it, you know, kind of. I, I think it's just the understanding of what makes Notre Dame special, and you talked about that, right? So, like, I'll reiterate it just a little bit: is that Marcus Freeman wasn't, you know, I I know he obviously knows Notre Dame, like Notre Dame is a big brand, obviously, right? But like, it's much different familiarity from. An outsider's perspective, being at Ohio State, being at Cincinnati, doing a little, you know, the Chicago Bears for a little bit as far as a player perspective, and then actually being a part of the program, right, and having that perspective. So that's different. But there's also a a next level, to Brian's point, where you have – I mean, Marcus Freeman's not coaching during the golden era of Notre Dame football, right? Like, it's been a long time since it's been that way. So, Lou Holtz has a very unique perspective of he understands what it takes to get there and at least what it took his teams to get there. It's going to be different because it's a different era, right? But he still has the perspective of this is what Notre Dame can provide. This is what has made Notre Dame players successful. This is what made the program successful. So, I think it's just perspective, Right. Like that's the biggest thing for me is that I think great coaches and great people just in general, professionals, take what people have done before them and have made them successful and make it their own. He's not going to do everything that Lou Holtz did because he can't. Right. right. Like it's not possible. And he's not Lou era. Holtz. It's a different game. Right. 100 percent. Right. He needs his own identity. But a part of his identity could be taking something from Lou Holtz that was unique to him and making it his own. So I think right. it's just the perspective is the biggest thing for me. Yeah. Let's go to the next question here. We, uh, Chris, Chris Basker asked, just bought tickets to the Ohio state game. What's the plan for IB at the game? I won't, we won't be doing anything at that game tailgate wise and things like that. Uh, just because we're going to be kind of traveling that day. So we'll be there. We'll be around, but kind of once we get there, I'm heading into the press box and, and getting set up for that. So we, we won't have anything. We'll, we'll obviously the next week against Marshall at home, we'll 
have a big tailgate, which would be a lot of fun. Ryan Loftus says, how many, how would you say this 2022 front seven compares to the 20, 2012 front seven? I think you kind of have to look on it as what it was going into the season. Because I don't think anyone anticipated Notre Dame being what they were in 2012. I think they expect them to be good on defense because guess what? They were good on defense in 2011. I've said this before, but Bob Diaco had Notre Dame as a top 25 scoring defense in each of his first two years or first three years at Notre Dame. What hurt them in the previous years was they just weren't really good when it came to scoring, right? But in, in 2011, Notre Dame finished 24th in the nation in scoring defense at 20.7 points per game, which wasn't great, but it was good. And in 2010, uh, they finished 23rd in, to- in scoring defense. I mean, I think people thought their name would be good on defense, but not like what they were. And and so, I mean, it's 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 just Ryan. It, it's hard to compare because it's so different. That was a, a a traditional three four two gapping defense. You had a massive nose tackle, a huge big end, and Capron Lewis Moore. You had physical downhill linebackers. You know, you're 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 a lot of cover two, you know, a lot of you know, roll coverages where you're using your corners to kind of be physical. Your safe, your Zeke Mata was ba- Zeke Mata is not playing safety in today's defense. He's a rover, <laughs> He's a rover. if not a will, <laughs> yeah. if not a will. You know, and so those things are just all different. And and you know, I think the thing about that 2012 defense, however, that this defense needs to adopt is that 2012 defense could really stop the run. And really shut down the run game. I mean, the the in the regular season, the most yards they gave up all year was 161 against Michigan, but Michigan averaged 3.9 yards per carry in that game. You can have 161 yards if you're only averaging 3.9 a carry and scoring six points. So I think I think those are the things I look at. I mean, in the regular season, only two teams went above 4.0 yards in, per carry in a game, and that was Pitt with 4.4 and uh, actually, and then Miami at four point seven. Miami only had eighty four rushing yards, only had eighteen carries because they had. Then they had a. They had, if memory serves me correctly, Stephen Morris had like a twenty something yard scramble at one point in time in that game, which is where a lot of their yards came from. But I think that's the key, the thing for me is if they can be like that, that's great. But this is a much smaller defense. It is a much faster defense. We need to find out now if it can be as effective as a defense. And that's what we don't didn't, know. Didn't that 2012 team only give up like one rushing touchdown all year? Like it was yeah, a that, crazy uh, stat, wasn't it? Uh, I I know they hadn't given up one until the Oklahoma game. That's Yeah, I remember that yeah. one. It was like they they went, what was it, six or seven games without living up a rushing touchdown yeah, or something and, like that? And like Blake crazy Bell stat. scored it, and he didn't score it until the second half of that game. Yeah. I, 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 Pitts, I'm pretty sure Pitt – I, I could be wrong. Yeah, Pitt had a rushing touchdown in that game. Okay. Uh, so that was a, a second one. I know that there was I, – I, it, it wasn't many, Ryan. And, and, I'm, yeah. and I'm looking up the box scores now. I knew they gave up another one, and, and Pitt had one. I thought that's – the reason that, that was the first game I went to is because I was at that game. I thought I remembered Pitt having like a 15, 20-yard touchdown run. But after that pit game, they only gave up six zero and thirteen points in the next three games to end the regular season. But obviously, they also gave up. You're talking regular season because they gave up several rushing touchdowns in the national championship sure. game. But Ryan sure. was talking regular season. But yeah, USC didn't have one. 
they were all field goals. BC was all field goals. They shut out Wake Forest. So, yeah, they ended up giving up two rushing touchdowns in the regular season that year. That's it. That's insane. That's yeah, insane. And, that's then Eddie, and, then Eddie, and then Eddie Lacy happens in the right. national championship. Yeah, exactly. Great. Exactly. But, Which yeah. I finally did watch the Manti uh, thing, by did the you, way. Did you like it? Yeah, I think I you said you liked it, right? I yeah. tweeted it. Yeah, I did. But here's the thing is, is in that game, though, if you look at it, Eddie Lacy happened, but Eddie Lacy only had one rushing touchdown in that game. TJ Yeldon had one rushing. Bam only rushed for two touchdowns in that game. So that means that defense in the entire year only gave up four rushing touchdowns the entire year. AJ McCarron threw four touchdown passes in that game. That's absolutely insane. Like that's it is no, it's and and for context, what was the what was the running back? CJ Verdell ran for five four or five touchdowns against Ohio State last year for context. Yeah. So you want to talk about something funny? I put this on the message board last night. Shocker, I couldn't sleep again last night, Ryan. But uh I was like you know, I wonder what the narrative was like going into that game last year, you know, really thinking about like, you know, how did people view that game? And and I'm watching it. I'm like watching these bold predictions that these Ohio state people are doing and then matchups. And they're like, they couldn't even run the ball on or Fresno state. They're not going to be able to run on Notre on Ohio mm-hmm. state. They're going to win by 35 points. I mean, just some of the, some of the predictions for that game were just like laughable when, now that yeah. you look at the outcome, I mean, I understand it going in, uh, but when you now that you know the outcome, it's it's kind of it's kind of laughable if I'm being honest about it. But uh, it it was just kind of one of those things where, you know, look, you really don't know what you don't know until your team gets out there. And you know, we can talk, we can kind of make fun of them all we want and all that other kind of stuff. But to to put how good that defense was in into in, into context, I mean, Georgia had an all time great defense last year. They gave up three rushing touchdowns in 15 games, and they didn't give up four. I mean, so Georgia in 2019 gave up two. I mean, they would have led the nation. Wisconsin, I don't even count 2020 because Wisconsin only gave up two, but they played seven flipping games. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, five, they would have led the nation in 2016, 15, 14, 13, led it in 12. Um, yeah, I mean, the the great Alabama defense of 2011, which was a great Alabama defense, Gave up three touchdowns that year, rushing touchdowns that year. That was it. I mean, so that was a that was a, a phenomenal year of running, and one of them was by a quarterback. You know, I mean, it was a designed running quarterback, but it was by a quarterback. In Belldozer, man, yeah. He's you know he's he's actually kind of lasted in the NFL a little bit as a back. Is he still in the NFL? I think That's he's still hilarious. in there. Yeah, pretty sure. That's that's hilarious. Chief Brody asks, it feels like Notre Dame under Kelly rarely was able to play anywhere near their best games in the big stages, to be honest. I mean, I think, Brody, that's that's the big thing. I mean, that's that's yeah. why this narrative exists. Is Notre Dame just, I mean, laid an egg? I mean, there's some years. I mean, honestly, if you go back and look at Lou Holtz's tenure, there's some years where, as we look back with nostalgia, we love Lou Holtz because we remember the Sugar Bowl win over Florida. We remember the the beating number one Colorado in a bowl game in, in 1989. You know, we, we remember a lot of that stuff. We remember the big wins. But what we forget in 1991 is, yes, they won that big game over Florida, but they got spanked at Penn State. They blew a huge lead at home against Tennessee, and they got beat by 10 at Michigan, right? And, and so why do we remember it? Because we remember them – we remember them winning that big spotlight bowl game. Nobody thought that they could win. And in 1990, 
you know, Notre Dame plays this great game against number one Colorado. They showed out, looked good doing it, but we kind of forget they lost at home to Penn State that year. They lost at home to Stanford that year. You know, like they, they, but they, they won the big games. They beat number four Michigan, right? Like, because we, we remember those big wins because there were so many of them. It made it easier to kind of overcome the losses. Right. And, and so, you know, when you, when you look at, when you look at just kind of Lou Holtz's tenure, the one thing Lou always did was win the big games. I mean, they, they go into the Cotton Bowl after the 1992 season. Notre Dame gets beat by 17 at home against against Stanford. It's embarrassing. But what do we also remember about that year? Blowing out a top 10 Penn and BC team, beating a ranked Penn State team in the Snow Bowl, right? Going on the road and beating a ranked USC team. We remember them beating number four Texas A&M by 25 in the Cotton Bowl. Right. We remember those games. And that's why the narrative about Lou Holtz is different than the narrative about Brian Kelly, because the overall win percentages aren't dramatically different. I mean, Lou Holtz has mm-hmm. definitely, uh, you know, I- I'm going to pull this up. Notre- Lou Holtz has a, definitely a better overall win percentage than Notre Dame than Brian Kelly. But the thing about it is, is, is it's not like this insane number. Right. So like, Lou Holtz, for example, had a 765 win percentage at Notre Dame. Brian Kelly's 731 is what they list here, but it was better than that because they took the 12 wins away. Uh, so actually, if you – if you uh, let me, let's see here. So 106 plus 21. Uh, let's see here. I just want to make sure I'm getting this correct because I want to I want to be fair to Coach Kelly. I, let me see if that was actually correct. No, they gave him those wins. So they gave him the 106 wins. So they gave him the 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 void the voided victories. His win percentage was 731. Lou Holtz's was 765, which is pretty good. But Lou Holtz's the gap between Lou Holtz and Era was greater than the gap between Lou Holtz and Brian Kelly. And then of course it's even greater when you look at Frank Leahy and and Newt Rockney. But here's the difference: is that Brian Kelly, his era to me is considered a disappointment because he didn't win the games that truly mattered, and Lou Holtz did. Brian Kelly did not lose games late in his career to teams that were inferior the way that Lou Holtz lost to teams that were inferior. You just, just you, 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 didn't, you didn't have a 17-point home loss to an unranked Stanford team under Brian Kelly in the last five years. But what you also didn't have is the win over Florida, number two mm-hmm. USC, number one Colorado. You didn't have all those things. And and I had this going the other day, Ryan. You saw me put this on the board, but here, here is when you, when you get down to it. Here's what separates the two. In his career, Lou Holtz went 33, 21, and two against teams that were ranked in the top 25 at the time. Mm-hmm. Brian Kelly went 23 and 24. In Lou Holtz's tenure against teams that finished ranked in the top 25, he went 31, 23, and two. Brian Kelly went 19 and 29. Here's where it gets really mm-hmm. big. Against top 10 teams, Lou Holtz. So these are games where you're playing a top 10 ranked team. Lou Holtz went 21, 15, and 1. And if you look at his first year and his last year, those inflated the stats even more. And and so, but but Brian Kelly went 4 and 14. Against Ugh. teams that were ranked in the top five when they played, Notre Dame was 12 and 8. And again, if you go look at the, the his first season and his last season, you see where I'm talking about. So, like, for example, in Lou Holtz's first year, replacing a fired coach, Notre Dame that season played uh, his first two years, I should say. Notre Dame played, see, one, two, two, ga- two games against top 10 teams, lost them both, and then he had several later in his career. 
you know, were like losing Ohio State and games like that when they weren't that good. Like if you look at the stretch uh, when they were really good, it, it gets even more impressive. I'm trying to I'm trying to find the the article that I have here or the breakdown that I have here. So if you just give me a second, I have this all broken down year by year. So let me let me find it uh, here real quick. Let's see if it's in my Notre Dame folder. Let's see your coach comparison because it's it's a really fascinating number. But anyway, even without that, as I still look for that, the reality is Ryan is twelve and eight against teams that ranked in the top five. Lou Holtz went twelve and eight. Like that is a that is a phenomenal statistic. So here here we go. So in 19 – let's see, go down here. Do, do we have Brian Kelly's numbers down here? Yes. So from 19, 1988 to 1993, Notre Dame went, see, 7-1, and 10-2, and 11-4. Um, see here. 12-5-1. Fourteen, five and one. So I'm trying to trying to do the math here. So from nineteen nine. So talking about teams that finished. Actually, let's go. Let's go with teams that were ranked when they played. He had fourteen wins over top ten teams from nineteen eighty eight to nineteen ninety three. Teams that finished ranked in the top ten. But if you just that, look at that games, good? that's really good. If you just look at where <laughs> games were when they played. So it's four and zero. Oh, see seven, eight and one. See nine and one, ten and one, eleven and one, eleven and two, eleven and three, eleven and four, twelve and four. I mean, it's it's an absurd number, Ryan. I mean, mm-hmm. Brian Kelly. You know what? How many? Let's flip it to Brian Kelly against teams that were ranked in the top five when they played. Brian Kelly's teams were one and eight. The only win being that, against Clemson. Clemson, right? Yeah, with a backup quarterback. Right and now. Yeah. Yep. Notre Dame beat two top five teams in Brian Kelly's tenure. The other was against mm-hmm. Michigan State in 2013. But when they beat Michigan State, they were unranked. Now, that doesn't take away from the yeah. greatness of the win because that was a great win. But my point is it wasn't the perceived big game matchup of other games. At the time. So yeah, there's right. just a different stress level. And to Chief Brody's point is that's – and we've heard this from other former players and other coaches like – it was such a tightly wound environment in those weeks where it just mm-hmm. was like, you just, it was just not a, and Lou Holtz is, we've heard this from Lou Holtz players. It was, they, they loved Miami week. They loved the big game week because that's when the coaches were not that they weren't demanding, but like, it wasn't like it was in other weeks where they were just like constantly on you about everything. Stressful they understood that these kids and, understand. Yeah. They know what it takes to get ready for this game. Now it's about us getting them ready. So you're absolutely right. And that, Chief Brody, is why the perception exists about Notre Dame and why a lot of fans, and, and I think Chief Brody's among them, that think that this is going to be a step back year. Why did Notre Dame fans think this is going to be a step back year? It's not because Brian Kelly's gone. It's because they look mm-hmm. at the schedule and they're like, oh, three top 10 teams. Oh, that's three losses. Well, right. there's reason for that because they don't win those games. So I, mm-hmm. I can under I don't agree with it, but I can understand it. Right. Sure. And so, but that's earned. You've earned that reputation because Brian Kelly's teams, not only did they lose those games, Ryan, but more often than not, they weren't even competitive. They're embarrassed. Yeah. Right. And that's the difference. And that's, I mean, that's what's got to change. That's what's got to change. Mm-hmm. 
All right, next question we've got here. Let's see here. This is a good one. He says, BVG attempted to operate a complex NFL defense. How does Golden style compare? Well, number one, we don't know what now Golden's defense is going to look like. Number two, it was the complexity of Brian Van Gorder's defense that was the problem. It's that Brian Van Gorder didn't understand the complexity of his defense. Right? I mean, the fact is, is he didn't know how to teach it. That's the problem. He didn't know how to teach it. And because he didn't know how to teach it, everything had to be kind of run through him because he couldn't teach his players to when you see this, like here's an example. When I coach, I've had coaches like this, and, and uh, we had a defensive coordinator, my last coaching job. We ran a 4-2-5, but he spent a lot of time with Gary Patterson, or not with Gary Patterson, but learning Gary Patterson's defense. And one of the things that Gary Patterson mastered, which is why the 4-2-5 was so successful for so many years, was there were built-in calls. So if a team went tempo, you had built-in calls based on three by one or two by two. So you knew if they line up a three by one, you know, have an automatic call. And then when the team shows that they're not going to snap it, then you look over and get the call from the defense, defensive coordinator, right? So Ryan, you know, I'm talking about like teams will go tempo and they'll line up and they'll do the clap. And then they look over mm-hmm. the, like, okay, you see, and then they look over the coach. That's when the defense would then get a call from the defensive coordinator. But if they were just going to go fast, the Mike linebacker and the safeties were making calls. This is what we're running three by one, two by two. This is the call. These are the built-in calls. And mm-hmm. so uh, because but you have to be able to teach that. You have to be able to make sure your players know the defense as well as you know the defense as much as possible. With Van Gorder, he didn't understand the defense. So how could he possibly get his players to understand it? And so it was unnecessarily complex. And it was also poorly mm-hmm. schemed. It wasn't just that it was too hard to learn. He didn't know what calls to make. You know, on third and eight. The, the players not knowing how to run the defense against Michigan State in 2016, that's not the reason Michigan State converted to third and eight late in the game when the game is on the line. It's because he decided to drop Jay Hayes and Jerron Jones into coverage. That's not a, oh, gee, the scheme is bad. Like, I could draw that up on a board and be like, yeah, it's a, okay, it makes sense. But he didn't, know how to, he didn't know how to use his players, and he didn't understand, like, how this call is going to impact the other team you're going to play. You're going to ask Jerron Jones to drop underneath a, a deep end cut. That's stupid. You're going to have 295-pound Jay Hayes get up underneath the hook curl route, something he's never done in his life, right? It's stuff like that. It's not that it was complex. It was just doing – it was just stupid. And so there are complex defenses that work. Clemson runs a somewhat complex defense, I think, under Brett Venables. His blitz package is pretty pretty extensive. Yeah. So, I mean, there are complex defenses that work in college football. Nick Saban's mm-hmm. defense isn't necessarily simple especially under Kirby's defense isn't simple. It's not just line up and we're mm-hmm. better than you. There's a lot of different sure. stuff that they do. It, it, and I think the perception is, is that, well, they're just better than everybody else. They just line up in a three, four and beat your tail. No, no, that's, that's not it. It's got some stuff to it. And yeah. so to me, it's not so much the complexity. It's just, he was not a good coach. Didn't know how to coach technique. Didn't know how to teach the players what he knew because, you know, he's basically getting it from somebody else's playbook. And well, it's it's it like it, it it's like a teacher in a classroom going into a class and not ha- ever having read the curriculum, right? Like you know what you have to teach, but like you don't understand it fully of like how the process of teaching it is going right. to work. So, right, I think that the Al Golden thing is going to be interesting because we've talked. I mean, I think structurally it's going to be similar to what Marcus Freeman wants to do, obviously, or has wanted to do at Notre Dame last year. 
But Al Golden's been around a lot of different defenses in his career, man. Like they were a three, four team during his temple days. I know during when he was at Virginia, they were a three, four team too. If I remember mm-hmm. correctly, they had like a mod Brooks and all those dudes. Yep. As well. Kai Parham, had, Chris Long. Yeah. So he's, ha- so he's had like three fours a ton, but then he's with Cincinnati most recently. And when he was at Miami, they were also a four man yeah. front. So it's more of like a four, three, four, two, five type of terminology. So I think the best part of it to the question is, is I don't think that there is a complete answer because I do think that it's going to be multiple. I do think there's going to be a lot of different layers to it. I don't think that it's going to be just a three, four, just a four, three. I think that there's going to be some complexity, not to the scheme as much, but just the the versatility and variety of being able to run multiple fronts, I think is going to be prevalent. That's just speculation, but we'll see in less than two weeks. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next question <clears throat> from Robert Bishop. Should the fact that our defensive practice, our defense practices every day against a quarterback that can run help with more this year, last year that we, they saw Jack every day in practice and he couldn't run to save his life. I don't think so. Honestly, number one, cause they can't tackle Tyler Buckner. Number one, mm-hmm. number two, they played against a scrambling quarterback in 18 and 19 in practice and still couldn't stop a scrambling quarterback in Ian book. Now Ian book wasn't the runner that, that, that Brandon Wimbush is, but it, it's not designed quarterback runs that have been the problem for Notre Dame. They can blow those up. Cause it's a run. You got run fits. It's the scrambles that have proven problematic. And, and I just don't think you're going to see Tyler Buckner doing a lot of that in practice, especially against first team defense. If he does, you can't tackle him. And it's hard to simulate that. So, and uh, yeah. And you also, I mean, the first team defense is also they saw Tyler Buckner last year in practice too. Like you don't usually go first team O Good versus point. first team D, you know, like usually it's the right. second, third string quarterbacks that are running yeah. the scouts. You're, you're out of that now, Ryan. Stuff. Like you did it the first yeah. couple weeks of all camp this week and moving forward. Yeah. They're not, they're not, they're not facing Tyler Buckner in a bunch of teams. They'll still go ones on ones at times, sure. but you're, you're, I mean, there's a reason that other players are wearing different, color, different jerseys. Other people are like, Hey, there's a bunch of number changes. No, they're just certain scout team guys. The biggest mistake i ever made in my career as a journalist or you know whatever i do 
And, and this is why I learned an incredibly valuable lesson. You don't just report something because you see it or hear it think at one time. It was the year that Kavari Russell was suspended. I was walking to practice. And this is like, what, 13, 14. And I'm looking at practice, and I see a number six playing corner. And it looked a lot like Kavari. And I ended up – I don't remember what I did. I might have said something on the message board. I can't remember how I got it out, but it was like, it wasn't Kavari. They were running scout team. And a lesson, you learn a lesson doing that, you know, when you make that kind of mistake. Uh, but, uh, I mean, that's why they're doing that now, right, is because of that. And because they're now prepping for Ohio State. Just like Ohio State's now prepping for you – know, whoever's, whoever's lining up against the Ohio State defense this week is wearing number 12, not whatever his normal number is, unless it is his normal number. Irish Gordy, not how thankful are you that we have big a, a big time a big game to start the year, so you don't have to constantly say that we can't look past the first team. In past years, we always want to look ahead to the big game. Uh, agree, Ryan. This would be a battle we had in the past. Is we would be doing prep for Louisville, and mm-hmm. and it was a Louisville then to Mexico, right? And each of those two weeks, nobody wanted to talk about that. They just want to talk about Georgia. It's like okay, oh yeah, guys, we're talking about Louisville. No, 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 we don't care. And play Georgia. I get it. You know, I mean, I wouldn't want to sit there and listen to an analysis of New Mexico either when Georgia's coming up next week. But yes, it is nice. It is nice to be able to not have to worry about that and just focus on and, the next team is the big game. And, and you get an early indicator of how good this team can be, right. right? Like you don't have to right. muddle through a couple of bad opponents and be like, okay, it looks good, but like, what's it going to look like on the big stage against better players, all that good stuff. You get a, I mean, it's not going to be the, the, Num- it's not going to be the true indicator of how good Notre Dame is going to be. Like Notre Dame is going to improve, obviously, you hope, in a lot of different areas from game one to game 12. But you're also going to get an indication early. Like, can they handle the pressure? What do they look like? Can they match intensity? All that good stuff. You're going to get a lot of indicators of just how good this team can be in, in game yeah. one, which would be fun. You know, it's interesting. The question that we had earlier was about, you know, will will Notre Dame kind of practice against Tyler Buckner help them – against mobile quarterbacks. Well, we're worried about CJ moving the chains with his legs, but I'm not worried about CJ ripping you the way that Spencer Sanders did, right? Sure. Now, here's the thing that that I thought was a, a really good question that was down here from Jawan Craig is he said, he says this, he says, Buckner will keep Ohio State defense on their heels as well. Ohio State will struggle versus the read option and his dynamic ability. That's an interesting take because there is no way for Ohio State to simulate Tyler Buckner's running ability. It is going to be easy. Yeah. If Notre Dame, let's say Notre Dame was going to play a Denard Robinson type of guy, they may say, hey, you know what? On Wednesday's practice, we're going good on good. And you're going to have to chase Tyler around. Can't hit him, <laughs> but you're going to have to chase him around to get ready for a game. I mean, again, can Tyler Buckner beat Denard Robinson? No. But can he mm-hmm. still give you a look that makes you like, hey, you got to chase? You have to be disciplined. You have to. Yes. Who does that even house throw? You might even like if it's a Denard Robinson. You might even throw like a backup corner that was an option quarterback. Well, in high if school, he was still healthy, like Avery Davis, right? Like if he was still <laughs> yeah, healthy right, in Avery exactly. Davis, uh, you're absolutely exactly. right. But Tyler Buckner yeah. could be that guy. Where yeah, who? Th- but that's what Ohio State's going to have to do. I mean, honestly, there may be times yes. in practice they're going to have to put like a running back, a quarterback, or a receiver, a quarterback. Yeah. Like put Caleb Brown back there on scout team and let him yeah. simulate Tyler Buckner because they don't have a quarterback yeah. that can move like him. Devin Brown ain't doing that. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. with all due respect, Kyle McCord is a good athlete for a quarterback. He ain't Tyler Buckner. Sure. So that's yeah. going to be an interesting aspect of this as well. There, there's no question. Yeah. 
There's no question. Yeah, I, might, I might I might put one of their backup running backs or somebody as like if you're trying to work on just like the quarterback power game, quarterback option stuff. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would consider it just in yeah. kind of the simulation type of thing. Yep. So that that is a that's a very interesting point. But see, when you do that, you then don't have a guy that can also throw it over your head. If you put a running back sure. or a receiver at quarterback and he's just scrambling around, the safety's thinking, oh, there he goes. Bam, go get him. You do that against Tyler mm-hmm. Buckner. He pulls it up, throws it over your head like you did to Toledo last year. And it's a big time play. And that's what that makes story. it hard for those guys to prepare for. I mean, it, it's, it's, there's partly, I mean, part of the reason is Notre Dame is not gap discipline. They don't tackle well. But the other part of it is those guys are just really hard to bring down sometimes, even if you do everything right. And, sure. and that's what makes those guys really dynamic, makes them very, very dynamic. So we have a, a, a quite another question here. Let's get to some more as we wrap this up. C Max says, Brian, who's start who's the starting four linebackers in Golden's base? Well, uh, I think they're gonna be a, a four a four down. So four four two five, which is basically Notre Dame, I think, under Al Golden's base defense will be a four two five alignment with four three personnel. Do you agree with that, Ryan? Yes. Because I we I both do. consider rovers to be linebackers in that situation. And oh, I yeah. think in that case, Ryan, it's Maris, JD, and Jack Kaiser most likely. You agree with that? Mm-hmm. But that we'll see a guess, rotation. Though. I think we'll see Prince Colley play. I think we'll see Bo Bauer play. I won't be shocked if we if we see Junior Tuilamaka play. I won't be incredibly shocked if we see Jalen Sneed play at some point in time. Maybe not in the opener against Ohio State, but I'll be shocked mm-hmm. if we don't see Jalen at least against you know Marshall and Cal at some point in time. Mm-hmm. Josh Phillips asks, "Who do you think? Who do you guys think will emerge as a starter? Nose tackle, Cross or Lacey? I think Howard Cross is the clear number one in this instance." Uh, but yeah. they're both going to play, and they're both going to be very important to what they do. Neither one of those and guys are going to dominate the snaps the way Kurt Heinisch did in past years, in my opinion. 100%. Yeah, I, I would say Cross gets a, a, the majority of the reps, but I really do think – I think there's times when Jacob – You mean Lacey's majority, meaning run. like 51% to 49% or well, the way that Kurt Heinisch did in the percentage. Okay. The higher no, I mean, it's, I'm, no, I'm not, not, I'm not like trying to like crack right. on you. No, it's, yeah. it's not the point of what no, I'm, I'm asking. I'm asking, are you thinking he's going to dominate the nose tackle reps the way that – Kurt Heinrich dominated the note because I don't think that's going to be the case. No, I, I think it's going to be like fifty-five to sixty percent of the snaps okay. go to Howard Cross, like something in that ballpark. Like he'll, I would, he'll have the majority of the snaps. Yeah, I think he'll have the majority, but I think it'll be lower than sixty. Lower percentage, unless, unless yeah. here's the here's the caveat. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just talking nose tackle snaps. I was well, talking between the two of them. Yeah, no, no, I am too. You know what I'm saying? I am too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. What I'm yeah. saying is like I, my point was just just snaps while they're playing nose tackles. I could mm-hmm. see scenarios where one of the two gets more reps because they're playing the other interior position is what I'm saying. So like, you know, how, let's say Howard gets, you know, 60, 40 split of total mm-hmm. snaps, but that's because he played mm-hmm. eight snaps as a three technique in a certain alignment or Jacob plays a couple more snaps than Howard because he was mm-hmm. kind of rotating in as the three technique as well kind of scenario and then there's snaps where neither of them are on the field so howard so like that's what i mean is but when i say the the i think that howard plays more but it will be less as is just pure nose tackle pure nose tackle that's fair i get what you're saying yeah no that makes sense i i think regardless though jacob lacy has given you a lot of flashes it's just been few and far between because of some injuries obviously during his career i think jacob lacy is a very important player to this interior yes. defense oh line, yes though. i yeah, think oh, he needs yes. to stay healthy and he needs to play yes 100 no doubt there's, there's some really nice flashes there man like last year there were some plays where you're like oh that's different that's nice you know what i mean so it's just about being healthy with a guy like a jacob lacy yep 
no doubt. Let's get to uh, Domerson's births at IB Family. I'm in the process of moving from California to Tennessee. Thanks for the material to listen to as the packing happens. Notre Dame needs to recruit both these states. 100%. Now, they're already recruiting California, but I have said many times, Ryan, that Notre Dame needs to recruit Tennessee more, the state of Tennessee more. 100%. Uh, And that's one of the reasons I've advocated for making Tennessee kind of a new rival. It's trying to create a rivalry with Tennessee. It's for that exact reason is to help you get back into recruiting that state even more effectively. And I think it's a great rivalry. I don't know what it is, yeah. but the gold and the orange, that bright orange in the field at the same time, there's just something different about Tennessee's orange compared to other oranges. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because it's brighter, but I just I love it. I love it. It could just be yeah. a childhood memory because I still remember Rocket having some big returns in that game at Tennessee and how loud that crowd was. And they thought they were going to beat Notre Dame, and Notre Dame went out and beat them. It was a great game. It's a great game. I don't want to talk about the next year's game. I don't want to talk about that one. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave that out. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Josh Phillips says, so that's why Notre Dame needs to beat Ohio State, and hopefully the narrative of Clemsoning goes away. No, I, that's the thing. It's you, you, The only way it goes away is by why did Clemsoning not become – why did Clemsoning go away? It's gonna start when, and it, and it started before Deshaun Watson showed up. It started even before yeah. that. It started when they beat Ohio State in the, in the Orange Bowl after the 2013 season. Taj Boyd? Yeah. And then what do they do the next year in, in the bowl game? They went out and spanked Oklahoma in a bowl game the next year. And then the next year they beat Notre Dame in the regular season. They started beating Florida State with regularity. And then they go into the postseason. They smack Oklahoma again in the college football playoff and then take uh, Bama down to the wire. The next year, 2016, they beat AM. I, I believe this AM is who they beat early in the year, correct? No. Am I, or was it Auburn? Uh, let me let me see here. They might have it might have been Auburn actually. Now that I think about it, because A and M was eighteen, uh, seven, eighteen and seventeen and eighteen. No, 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 eighteen and nineteen. So let me just let me just look up Clemson. I think it might have been Auburn. Now that I think about it, they beat Auburn early in the year. Yes, they beat Auburn at Auburn. Beat Louisville with Lamar Jackson, who was ranked fifth at the time. Uh, go out and beat mm-hmm. Ohio State, thirty-one nothing beat Alabama, and so the narrative is just destroyed. But they actually got rid of that narrative the year before, uh, and, and it built up over time. And, and you know, it started with, again, I, I believe it started with the, the Orange Bowl in 2013. Is is that season, I think, is kind of when things started to turn around for Clemson. And, you know, they, they started to turn around. Not completely because they still lost to Florida State and South Carolina that year, and that's where a lot of that came from is they can't win big games. Why? Because they got beat by Florida State and South Carolina almost every year when Steve Spurrier was in South Carolina. And then that Ohio State game started to change it, and then they go out in 2014. They lose to Florida State early, but it was an overtime, but then they beat South Carolina late in the year, and and then they went on and beat Oklahoma 40-6. to uh, But, you know, it started to change then. They still had a bad loss to Georgia early in the season, you know, so it wasn't completely gone. And then 2015 with the win over Notre Dame, uh, it, start, it, was, it was really started to go away. Then they beat – Florida State that year beat beat Oklahoma by twenty in the bowl game, and then of course beat out you know took Alabama down the wire, and at that point in time it was gone. I actually went away before they won a championship. Honestly, that's what I think. Like if they would have not gone back, let's say the loss to Pitt in twenty sixteen would have knocked them out of the playoff. Mm -hmm. I still don't think the Clemsoning thing is a thing anymore because they had enough big wins over enough big time programs and showed that they belonged on that stage that people just stopped talking about it. Because, again, I go back to this, Ryan. I don't think it's just that Notre Dame keeps losing these games that these narrative exists. It's the way that they mm-hmm. lose these games. 
It just they're not yeah. even competitive. And that's the thing. Yeah. That's where I think that I could be wrong, but that's where I think that narrative comes from. I don't disagree with that fact. I think it I think it's definitely the lopsidedness of the of the losses. But I think for it completely to be a race, though, you need to win those games, right? Like it's not just sure. a clo- I, like a close but, loss will help reverse right. it for sure. But to fully destroy it right. would have to be a win, in my opinion. And that's what I'm saying about Clemson. They had those wins. They beat Ohio State in an Orange mm-hmm. Bowl. And and even sure. had a win over LSU. If you remember after the 2012 season, they beat LSU in the Peach Bowl. Uh, but they went out and beat Ohio State in 2013. In 2014, they spanked Oklahoma that year. 2015, they beat Notre Dame. They beat Florida State. Florida State was still good in 2015. They weren't as good as they were, but they were still a 10-plus win team. And then they beat Oklahoma in the playoff. I mean, that's the thing is I, I, I'm saying is like they did win those games. They didn't win the sure. – I'm saying is if the, even if they didn't win the ultimate prize of a national championship mm-hmm. at that time, I still think the, the Clemsoning thing goes away. And then the narrative is, okay. hey, Clemson's really good. Can they take that final step? That's a different – I would love to be having that narrative about Notre Dame right now. Yeah. <clears throat> hey, Notre Dame's really good. Are they Are they good enough yet to beat Bama? That's not even com- – people think Notre Dame belongs on the field of Alabama right now, and I understand why. I think it's kind of junk uh, because they earned their, their way onto that field. They just mm-hmm. – they didn't – you know, what are you going to do? Just like forfeit because you don't think Notre Dame's good enough? Right. Like, I mean, it's like it's a Broncos fan. He's talking about this. Well, Denver doesn't belong in the Super Bowl. Why? They beat every team in the AFC. Like, of course they belong. That team's just way better. You know, the Niners are just mm-hmm. way better. Uh, so, you know, it, it, I'm just I'm tired of it. And I would love for it to be over with. But it only ends by winning. That's it. Yes. That's it, Ryan. It's just it's winning. Point blank period to it. Playing Ohio State tight for 60 minutes is a positive when looking at this 2022 team it mean mm-hmm. and what i mean by that is it's it can be a confidence builder for this team to go out and do some good things the rest of this year it still keeps in the playoff conversation right it's about the 2022 team it's a, a, a you know a, a florida state type 2014 type loss mm-hmm. helps this 2022 football team it doesn't mm-hmm. change the narrative if, if that makes sense like yeah, it does. They got to go out and beat Clemson for the narrative to start to change. Then they've got to follow that up with a postseason victory over somebody good. Because if they beat Clemson this year and Clemson has a couple losses, then the narrative becomes, well, Clemson, this isn't the same Clemson team. It won't look the same as had you beat Ohio State. So that's it. it it's going to take more, but it, it could maybe it could be the start of the turnaround. One of those games has to be won for it to be the start of the turnaround, in my opinion. There's no you got to make the snowball before you push it down the down the mountain. So never heard that before. That's really good. I just made it up. Really good, Jay Henry. I want to ask you this, Jay. If you could follow up real quick, says uh, Brian and Ryan. Has there ever been a lost recruit that has tanked the class, i.e., Florida State losing Travis Hunter? I actually okay. I think he's talking about Notre Dame. I think we Mm -hmm. have seen that before. Uh, You know, I'm trying to think back, like tank the class in regard to everybody guys leaving I, no because the 2017 class still kept a lot of guys but they like they lost Pete Werner and I mean but it it, it yeah. hurt the class but that was still a pretty good class I mm-hmm. think of the year that Lorenzo Booker picked Florida State I think really killed that class really just com- completely changed the dynamic because everybody it was kind of like the opposite of the Manti thing you know, where when Manti, I mean, that's that was the most fascinating thing. I've actually heard that before. 
I've heard that about Manti's. He didn't necessarily want to pick Notre Dame. He truly believed that through prayer, God had said, this is where you need to be. And then, of course, the uncle saying, oh, that's that's cool. Or I think it was an uncle or maybe mm-hmm. it was a coach saying, like, I just thought you, you know, instead of going to the USC and being the next whatever, that you'd go to Notre Dame and be the only Manti Teo. Like, I think that mattered to him. But I also think as a, as a young man of faith that I really felt he felt led to Notre Dame, even though his heart was telling him not to go Notre Dame. USC. Yeah. yeah. But like that class to me, it was a really good football class or recruiting class. You had most of all in that class. You had Raymond McKnight in that class, Derek Landry's in that class. James Benelli was a highly ranked player in that class. Hey, here's one. Scott Raritan, Eli Raritan's dad was in that class. Uh, Bob Morton was considered one of the top centers in the country and Anthony Fasano in that class. Marcus Freeman was in that class. Not the one you're thinking of the tight end from Minnesota. (laughs) You had Chris Fromm in that class. Travis Lightco from the Woodlands was a highly ranked guy, but not getting Lorenzo Booker really took the shine off that class. I don't know if I'd say it tanked it, but it took a lot of shine off of that class, in my opinion. Um, so trying to think of like other years, um, I mean, Lorenzo Booker was the number three player in the country. Uh, another one, losing Ronald Darby late in the 2012 class. That was rough. That was a, that, that, that class. I mean, you think about who that class landed, Ryan. That was a pretty mm-hmm. good class. I mean, when you look at who they, they got in that class, I mean, you got Ronnie Stanley in that class. You got Romeo Aguar in that class. You got Kavari Russell in that class. Uh, you know, you got some good players in that class. Um, Sheldon Day, Jerron Jones, T. Shepard, C.J. Procise, Elijah Shoemate. But you get Ronald Darby in that class. Five-star corner. Big-time player. That class is different. That class is way different. I mean, it jumps, in my opinion, way up. If they if that happens, and that's just one of those ones where, you know, you get T. Shepard and you get T. Shepard and Ronald Darby, then the perception about Notre Dame's class changes at the time, but the actual impact would have changed because of Ronald Darby and Kavari Russell, because Kavari mm-hmm. was considered a top like one hundred and fifty kind of guy, but he wasn't considered like, um, you know like Ronald Darby was. I mean, Ronald Darby was right. a big-time player. So, yeah, that's that's Kavari, one. Kavari, Kavari was more of a running back. Really, Correct. Too, well, right? Notre Dame actually school? initially recruited him. He played both, but mm-hmm. uh, and he was considered an athlete, but Notre Dame was actually recruiting him as a running back. Now, there were some teams recruiting him as a DB, but Notre Dame was actually recruiting him as a running back. He was going to be the running back recruit in that class. Mm-hmm. But uh, he ended up not uh, – Obviously playing. I mean, he was going to play running back at Notre Dame. It was not getting Ronald Darby and then Low Wood getting hurt in spring ball that resulted in them moving Kavari to running back corner corner before he ever showed up. So he was not an early enrollee. Had he been an early enrollee, he probably would have started at running back in the spring. But that changed after they lost Darby and then lost Low Wood to a spring injury. So so it's very fascinating. Very fascinating. Quinn Kibler says, mailbag, can Notre Dame beat Ohio State with less passing yards than Michigan? Michigan had 190. Can they? Yeah, I think they can, but it would it would have to be exactly like That's the Michigan game man. went, Ryan. Well, I, I don't know if I I don't know if I agree with that. I think the premise being they didn't need to throw for a lot because they completely ran the ball down their throat. And I mean, that's the why it, it's you need context. Why are they only passing for 190 yards? Why did Michigan only mm-hmm. pass for 190 yards against Ohio State last year? they couldn't pass for 190 yards last year well there's two reasons why number one they ran it down their throat i mean just flat Mm -hmm. out ran it down their throat they ran for 300 
what was it, uh, ran for 297 yards. The other reason why is they had two huge pass interference penalties that gave them big yardage but negated the yards a little bit. This is why I laugh when Ohio State fans tell me Denzel Burke didn't give up a single touchdown last year. Okay, my bad. He gave up a 50-yard pass against Michigan where he tackled the guy at the one-yard line. My bad. Didn't give up a touchdown. <laughs> but there's also two plays where he got called for pass interference on plays where they might have gone for touchdowns. So, again, context is needed, right? And so when you look at Michigan last year, their quarterback went 14 of 20 for 190 yards and had two big pass interference penalties that kept the yards down, but they ran for 297 yards. If Notre Dame runs for 297 yards against Ohio State and their quarterback goes – 13 of 19 for 180 yards. Yeah, I think Notre Dame's got a chance to win that football game. Because they're not going to keep running it if they're losing. You know? I mean, so can they? Yeah. Would I predict it? No. I think that's where Ryan's pushback comes. Because these teams are built Mm -hmm. differently. Notre Dame is built to be more of a balanced team. Michigan was built on being a running team. And so I think that's where I would come from. But can they? Yeah, they can. I just don't think yeah. that's how it's going to go. I think more it's going to be more like if Notre Dame wins, it's going to be more like 215 to 230 running and then generating some big plays in the pass game. I think that's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, where they throw for, you know, 240 in the pass game, something like that. There's somewhere around there is where I think it would have to that that to me would be more I'd be more comfortable with that sweet spot. But yeah, they can. They definitely can. If Michigan could do it last year, then Notre Dame could do it this year, in my opinion. There's no doubt about it. Robert Bishop says, do you guys believe Georgia should be ranked so high after losing so much top-end players to the draft? Odd that Paul Feinbaum only singled out Notre Dame, Notre Dame out for being overrated. Well, the only reason he singled only Notre Dame out is because, again, you have to understand what is the purpose of Paul Feinbaum's comments. Do you genuinely think that Paul Feinbaum just got up there and said, you know what, after watching film and really diving into the stats and looking at the records, I think it's ridiculous that Notre Dame is consistently ranked in the top five and then make such an absurd statement that they are this way every year and they never finish that high, knowing that in four of the last five years, they finished higher than what they were in the preseason ranking. And the only year they did finish as high, they were ranked ninth and finished 12th. Technically, they were overrated, but it's probably not an argument. Oh, they were way overrated. Well, what, what do you mean? Well, they were ranked ninth. Well, they finished 12th. It was terrible. Okay, Sure. But technically, they were overrated. So four in the last five years and five in the last seven years, Notre Dame has finished higher than they were ranked. But the point wasn't to provide analysis. It was to still have us a week later talking about him in articles that I'm writing and on a message board. And that's what ESPN does. That's why I don't watch ESPN. Uh, but again, the reason he can make that statement is because of what we talked about before. We'll need to rehash it again. So, yeah. Yeah. He's also the SEC guy, so right. that's just right. is what it is. SEC people hate Notre Dame. It just right. is what it is. I will say this. I'm a big fan of Georgia winning national championship. I'm fully okay with them being ranked. You're the champ until somebody like, beats you, man. That's always been my philosophy. 100%. 100%. I do, however, think that there, a case could be made for teams in, in different circumstances. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how I felt about LSU in 2020. They lost a ton, not just from the playing standpoint, but number one, number one, number two, they lost a lot of their coaches that had a big role in that. Number one, I didn't like the hires they made. And I don't love, I don't love the defensive coordinator hire that Kirby made. I don't. And Will Muschamp. I don't mm-hmm. love that hire, but mm-hmm. Todd Munkin's back and, and, you know, 
you know, Matt Luke retired, but Stacy Serrells is a decent line coach. He's a solid line coach. He's not bad. Did, did Matt Luke retire? I missed that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He, uh, he had some, he wanted to spend more time with his kids. His kids were at that age where he just felt like the pressure of coaching and all. And he just, you know, went out. Yeah. So, um, I but missed that. yeah, but the point for me is there's two big differences between LSU 2020 and Georgia 2022. Number one track record. Georgia, even before that, they've had losses before and still been pretty good. They have a track record mm-hmm. of they're going to be a top team, right? Number one. Number two, they do have their quarterback coming back. And, and I don't think Stetson Bennett's like this great quarterback, but you know what? He is a pretty clutch kid, right? I, yeah. I've said this before. Stetson Bennett is what Notre Dame coaches thought Ian Book was. He actually is that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, yes, they lost a lot. They have a lot coming back. They had a lot of injuries last year of guys that would have played that didn't play, um, you know. So, am I going to sit there and say if Ryan says because we're going to do an IB top twenty-five? Actually, we're going to talk about this after the show is over, Ryan and I. But if if he has Georgia third, I'm like, dude, what the heck, man? Like, how do, they're the champs? No, I'm not going to say that because I understand it. But I also mm-hmm. wouldn't say if I had him third and Ryan had him one, I'm not going to like, dude, they lost fifteen guys. Like they lost this guy. No, you're the champ until somebody's beat you. I believe yep. that. And, you know, so if, if for all the talk we talk about, if Georgia goes out there and goes 12-0 and in the regular season, nobody else should be ranked number one. Nobody should be ranked number one except for them until somebody beats them. Then you can talk about it, you know, mm-hmm. and plenty of teams will get their chance. So uh, that's kind of how I think about that. But I, I also think that it's a situation where, I think people can have different opinions on it, Ryan. I don't think it's the mm-hmm. rule. It should be the rule. And like, there's some things like when I see people vote, I'm like, if you have that team there, you should not be voting. Like, I'm sorry, shouldn't be voting. But I also think that there, this is one of those ones people have difference of opinion because you can focus more on what's coming up and less on what happened, you know, and then with what's coming up, there's a, there are question marks of Georgia. Bama has less mm-hmm. question marks perception wise. Ohio State has less question marks perception-wise than the other team sure. does. And so that's where I'm at with that. So, all right. So that is going to do it for today's show. A lot of fun, everybody. Thank you so much for the great questions. We really appreciate it. Before you go, hit that like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notification bell, share this podcast, uh, and and definitely sign up for the message boards, boards at irishbreakdown.com. If you're listening via podcast, give us a five-star review. We would greatly greatly appreciate it and uh tomorrow we'll be here wednesday and we'll be one day closer to notre dame ohio state so uh thanks everybody for joining us ryan great stuff today glad to hear that jules is doing much better back in good spirits uh and uh appreciate all of y'all for keeping ryan and his family in your prayers so have a good one everybody thank you for joining us on the irish breakdown podcast
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.